The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I think it, it's going to be in the context of an opinion that is a shot across the bow to all the other state Supreme Courts saying, we're, we're watching all of you and don't go rogue. And we're worried about some of you going rogue. And so an affirmance would be to say, you you haven't gone rogue in this case. But I think, I, I just don't think they want to duck the issue of not announcing something like at least the Bush versus Gore standard as, as the shot across the bow. And so then the question becomes, if they are really going to adopt this standard and operationalize it, are they willing to affirm and say, we've announced the standard, but we're actually going to pass on the application of the standard in this case and, and, and give the North Carolina Supreme Court a passing grade. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for December 8th, 2022. Yesterday morning, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in what may be the biggest case of the term, Moore v. Harper. In that case, North Carolina state legislature is arguing that the state Supreme Court lacks the legal authority to review the heavily gerrymandered congressional districts it has enacted, on the grounds that the Constitution's Elections Clause gives that authority exclusively to the state legislatures. An argument often referred to as the Independent State Legislature Doctrine, which many fear may undermine state law election protections around the country if taken up by the court. To discuss, I sat down yesterday afternoon with two leading election law experts for a live recording of the podcast on Twitter Spaces, Professor Ned Foley of The Ohio State University Moritz College of Law and Professor Derek Muller of the University of Iowa College of Law. We discussed where the justices seem to be leaning, how they may resolve different aspects of the party's arguments, and what it all might mean for 2024. It's the Lawfare Podcast for December 8th, dissecting the oral arguments in Moore v. Harper. So Derek and Ned... Let's start our conversation at kind of the highest level here. Obviously, oral arguments with the Supreme Court is a little bit like reading tea leaves. You're trying to get a sense of how different justices think about certain issues, different ways they may break down in approaching the case. And that's always a little bit of a risky endeavor, but I'm going to ask you all to, to peer into the tea glass with me. And Derek, I'll start with you, and then I'll go to Ned. What do you make just at a high level of the oral argument today? What hints did you think we got, if any, of where different members of the court may be leaning and how the different ways you might be able to break down the issues in this court that are up for decision in front of them? Sure. It was a three-hour argument, and um, 
I don't know that there was too much that was surprising from the argument. Let me start with that. Uh, it, it seemed like there were a lot of positions that had already kind of been staked out in some of the cases before. But I will say the, the first thing that struck me was that the petitioners came in, you know, the legislature with a pretty, one might describe as sort of a maximalist position, essentially saying uh, the state constitution can never substantively constrain the state legislature. You know, Justice Gorsuch was the only one during oral argument who seemed uh, expressly sympathetic to that view. And so it was only pretty late in the day that they sort of reached a, a fallback position of, well, you know, maybe we should think about this as a fallback about those positions that are uh, those provisions of state constitutions that are explicit or clear. Um, and even that didn't necessarily garner a lot of traction on the court. Instead, I think there were, the, to the extent that people were interested in suggesting that the elections clause has this constraint on what state courts or state constitutions might do, uh, it seemed to draw a lot on uh, just Chief Justice Rehnquist's concurring opinion in Bush versus Gore, um, which received a lot of attention during this oral argument. And while it's a different context, and there, there's some wonky reasons to talk about the different context or the fact that this is a constitution as opposed to the statutory issues in Bush versus Gore, it was similar to some of the things raised by the Conference of Chief Justices amicus brief, which uh, also suggested that maybe there are these outer bounds, what you know had been described by Neil Kotchal at oral argument for the respondents as sky high sort of standard to say that in the most egregious circumstances, there could be a place for the federal courts or really the United States Supreme Court to step in and say that a state court just went too far in interpreting its constitution in a fairly bizarre way. Um, so if the North Carolina legislature wins, uh, it might only win on a pretty technical, narrow ground that might not apply to this case. And it might be very difficult for anyone to meet in the future. I don't know. But uh, that was sort of my large level takeaway from from today's argument. Ned, how about you? What was your, your sense and your takeaway from today's argument? Yeah, well, again, thanks for uh, having me uh, for this conversation. And and I think I largely agree with Derek. Uh, the one way I might phrase it is I think uh, the balance of power on the court is searching for some form of middle ground position. Uh, so I suspect we'll get to, we'll, that's what we'll see at the end. Um, but I, I think I heard expressed an argument and also in the briefs, two distinct different middle ground positions. And it's unclear to me, which of those two, uh, you know, might prevail in terms of getting five votes and, you know, enough votes to, to win. Um, uh, you know, there was one line that the chief had at oral argument. Can't remember who he was asking. Maybe it was uh, Don Verrilli was like, if, if you fall back to your fallback, are you going to hit the other side when they fall back to their fallback? And I think that was some indication that, you know, each side had a kind of fallback position, but they weren't necessarily the same fallback. So if you want, I'd be happy to try to describe what I think is the distinction between the two different middle ground positions, because I think that's where the fight will be ultimately in the end. I don't think the maximalist position will prevail, as, as Derek suggested. And, and I think, you know, something like the Bush versus Gore concurrence, which is one of the two middle ground positions, I think is definitely on the table. So I do want to get into those middle ground positions because I agree it, those were where we actually saw most of the action happening, not really on, frankly, the main argument the petitioners spend their time on in their brief and spent their time on in oral argument, um, at least for those portions in which they were driving the bus. 
But I want to start with their lead argument first, just to clear the air, because in a lot of ways, it is the argument that has gotten the most attention from the press. I think it's the one that raises the most alarm bells for people in that it is this maximalist position that state legislatures have the authority to regulate state rules regarding the conduct of federal elections in a way that cannot be subject to uh, judicial review. Uh, And in making this case, the petitioners made what is actually kind of an important concession, I think, potentially if the court were looking for kind of an easy way out uh, without really getting the merits of certain issues, uh, where they basically say, we're willing to concede that the state court in this case actually correctly interpreted state law, state constitutional law, state statutes. That's fine. But that they just don't, we just don't think they have the authority to engage in any sort of review like this. How did we see different justices reacting to this? Derek, you already mentioned Justice Gorsuch was the only one who, who seemed really to nod to it in a way that was even really seemed open to it, at least by my listening, although I, I welcome correction or alternative views on that. What was the different way the justices approached this issue, which really was the thrust of North Carolina's arguments kind of going into this North Carolina legislature, I should say, arguments going into this case? Yeah, like I said, a lot of skepticism. Uh, so Justice Gorsuch, you know, really kind of leaned in to point out that when you talk about sort of the breadth of the petitioner's claim, it's not unchecked, although it certainly removes a check or maybe multiple checks in the process. The point is, it's there's federal law that governs, federal constitutional law that governs, state courts still have the power to interpret federal law, Congress can always step in, you have political checks. Now, as many have pointed out, they deem those checks ineffectual, but that was sort of the point he was raising. But you saw many other justices, Justices Kagan, Jackson, and Sotomayor, for instance, pretty vociferously pointing out um, the absurdity about their position or the claims that this would uh, undermine the, the, the constitutional provisions in all 50 states or that there were all these other court cases that they have to deal with. You know, and Justice Kagan really leaning into language from the Supreme Court's recent decisions in the Arizona redistricting case in 2015, Rucho versus Common Cause, the partisan gerrymandering case in 2019. Um, and as much as, you know, the petitioners try to distinguish those things, it was just sort of a, I mean, whether it's a constant barrage of interruptions or <laughs> statements to say, listen, we've got all these things on on the side suggesting that really your position goes too far. And one of the earliest maybe skeptical pieces came from Justice Barrett, where she was asking about what what the petitioner suggested was this substantive procedural divide. That is, the legislature said, well, the procedural devices, the referendum, the veto power, whatever it is, those things are acceptable and they're consistent with the court's precedent. But substantive constraints on the legislature, you know, cannot be binding. And Justice, you know, Barrett kind of put a fine point on it to say, well, is that a is that a distinction that you can hold in the text of the Constitution, or is that a distinction you're drawing for convenience, essentially, because our precedents have already put places where the legislature can be constrained, at least in some procedural places. Um, so I think that was a difficult place. The court you know, struggled at various points in time. Can we distinguish procedural and substantive? Uh, or the motives of the governor when vetoing a bill, he may be doing so through the process, but with a very substantive judgment. So uh, again, from that maximalist position, and I would venture to say it was a lot of the media commentary, whether you describe it as sky is falling or real worries about the extreme position. There was essentially no appetite, again, setting aside Justice Gorsuch, and you never know privately what might happen in conference for, for a majority that would get to, to that view at the end of the day. 
I, I can jump in and just add, I, I agree with Derek's analysis of, of that. I, I think, um, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if Gorsuch picked up an extra vote or two on the maximalist position, but I just don't see how he can get, you know, to, to control the outcome of the, of, of the case with it. So I, I think the, the real fighting will be over, um, uh, again, you know, what else uh, the court wants to say. And if, if I can just say one thing about the, if I'm right about that, or if we're both right about that, you know, one hugely significant consequence is is that there are, will be a lot of state constitutional provisions that will be substantive and will effectually constrain state legislatures. So one of the hypotheticals that came up was what if a state constitution put in a specific standard for constraining gerrymandering, you know, whether it's the efficiency gap standard or something else. But if it was really written into the state constitution in a clear-cut way, you know, the rejection of the maximalist position means that's judicially enforceable by state supreme courts. And, and that would, you know, leave a huge chunk of, of the playing field as it exists in the status quo and make this doctrine much less rev- revolutionary than some people think it, it has the potential to be. Well, let's go to those fallback positions now that we have this idea that this primary argument doesn't look like it had a lot of bites coming from the justices. But the petitioners did pivot fairly quickly under some pressure from a couple of the justices to a secondary argument they had, which is I take to be kind of a rebuttal of this idea we've seen floated both in briefing and kind of an outside commentary about the case about the fact that whatever the constitutional structure might be. In this case, it seemed like the state legislature at least arguably authorized a degree of review here by state statutes, right? Um, So that we wouldn't necessarily have to reach this conflict about a court engaging in review in a way contrary to the state legislature. And they made this argument saying, well, you know, even if state legislatures did that, if there are laws that are on the books, in this case, there is an obstacle in that they haven't provided an intelligible principle. They haven't given a sort of line of substantive requirement to whoever they're delegating this rulemaking, election rulemaking authority to, in this case, the courts, that satisfies the requirements of kind of the non-delegation doctrine, all this kind of weird application of that, but non-delegation principles. Instead, they are just providing, you know, wholesale delegating this authority, and that's impermissible. First off, I guess, did we see any other bites in that particular argument or version of the argument from uh, the justices? There was definitely interest in it and prodding it, although I wasn't sure how many actually bought into it. And I guess, second, how plausible a way, uh, you know, out of this sort of um, sort kind of sort of conundrum might this path be in the first place, in terms of the actual statutes underlying the this kind of claim that they may have been authorized. And were court did the justice seem open to kind of reading the statutes that way in the first place? Ned, let me start with you on this one. Sure. Um, well, I think the chief at least expressed interest in what I understand to be the real import of the fallback position, which I think is goes beyond just the details of North Carolina having had a a piece of legislation that authorized uh, you know judicial review under the state constitution. As I understand, you know the potential significance of the petitioner's fall back, you know, for all around the country, it would essentially be, you know, if people are familiar with the Rucho case where the U.S. Supreme Court said that a general constitutional provision like just equal protection doesn't supply a judicially manageable standard 
uh, for policing partisan gerrymandering because you know it's too generic and uh, and at least in that context there's nothing for the judiciary to hang its hat on. And while that in Rucho that was just uh, an understanding of you know the power of the U.S. Supreme Court under the federal constitution, the petitioner's fallback would essentially require state constitutions uh, and state Supreme Courts to <laughs> to be straightjacketed in the same way, even if they wouldn't like to be. In other words, even if a state Supreme Court said, we like the Rucho dissent that Justice Kagan was, we think we can interpret our state constitution, a free and fair elections clause, an equal protection clause, what have you, to just fine, this position would take that off the table. The U.S. Supreme Court would be making the decision on what's what's permissibly judicial or not. And there was a bunch of discussion, you know, at, at several points in the argument about, you know, when when a court acts more like a legislature than a court, so that it's not engaging in in appropriate judicial behavior and acts in a policymaking uh, legislative role. That's the kind of thing that is a no-no under this fallback theory of the elections clause. That would be still a pretty powerful fallback position. It's not the fully maximalist position, but it would basically mean, you know, generic constitutional standards like due process, equal protection, free and fair, what have you, are off limits to a state Supreme Court unless they're converted into something very specific like one person, one vote. But but unless the federal court can't see that specificity, it doesn't count as uh, sufficiently judicial. And, and I think that is a, a different middle ground, if you want to call it that, than reliance on the Bush versus Gore theory, which was, a, I think, a much more modest middle ground. Maybe I'll take take this to sort of bridge to maybe the narrower position, you know, beyond that, because I do I think that's right. I think the court did seem a little nervous about tr- trying to draw that kind of a line, wondering what was going to be sufficiently definite. Um, again, s- several briefs articulated this and said there are such things as clear statement rules, and, and we can identify those. Um, but that, that's a lot of new policing from the Supreme Court to figure out what the contours of that look like. And, and the, the reason I think that an even more modest or narrower position seem to have a lot more attention on the court in a couple different ways. Because I think because, uh, you know, Chief Justice Rehnquist's opinion in Bush versus Gore um, really attracted a lot of attention. And I think in, in, in an unexpected way, and I'll set it up like this. I, I think a lot of people looked at, say, Justice Kavanaugh's involvement in the case, right? And his citations to it, or the citations to Palm Beach, and, you know, the things that were happening in 2000. I think people have seen that as, oh, this is sort of an openness to the court's previous forays into the area to suggest, aha, there's limitations on what state courts can do. Um, and very quickly, the petitioners were citing to Palm Beach and to Bush versus Gore, and, and Justice Kavanaugh asked many specific questions about those cases. But Justice Kavanaugh then also suggested that they were reading it too broadly, and saying, well, really, this is standing for a different proposition. Palm Beach was a case in 2000 where the court just said, we're sending this back for the Florida Supreme Court to figure out what's going on. And maybe it doesn't really stand for much doctrine at all. And Justice Chief Justice Rehnquist's opinion really stands for the proposition that there are these true exceptional outliers that we need to step in and exercise some judgment and, and ensure that we're restraining the state legislature. So while some of these cases and a lot of the language talking about where these these ideas come from Bush versus Gore have been in the background for many years, 
Justice Kavanaugh in particular was sort of crystallizing the notion that, no, well, Bush versus Gore is this principle. It stands for something much narrower than the kinds of things that you're advocating for here today. And so to the extent that Bush versus Gore is helpful to you, it's actually going to constrain and narrow the kinds of cases, including your own probably, where these this doctrine would be applicable. Um, and so in that way, I think the, the court a majority of the court seemed more inclined toward a, a fairly narrow position with this sort of escape hatch in a, in a subset of circumstances. Well, I think that leads pretty well into what I took to be the other falling back position, this time by the respondents, all three of whom of the three different attorneys we saw argue for them, or for, two for the respondents, I should say, one for the United States, the Solicitor General, were kind of put in the position of acknowledging a concession of sorts, if you want to frame it that way, that they made, which is this idea that there is, are at least some cases, some sort of residual uh, ability of the federal Supreme Court to review how the state Supreme Court interprets the state constitution in application to this sort of issue, some sort of residual federal interest in that. And then there was a lot of debate over the standard that applies there, and actually a bit of disagreement between Neil Katyal uh, representing one group of respondents, basically saying a super high standard, higher for state constitution than for statutes, um, very, very high, you know, atmospherically high is where all this discussion of outer space kind of came into the argument. Um, then you had former Solicitor General really arguing for another set of respondents, basically saying, I think he actually tried to articulate a standard where he said essentially ask whether the Supreme Court should ask whether a state decision is such uh, a sharp departure from ordinary modes of state constitutional interpretation that it lacks any fair and substantial basis in state law. Basically, a high standard that's also deferential to the interpretive methodology of the state courts, I take it. Uh, And then the US government kind of endorsed a version of that view, but framed it more in terms of taking on a policymaking role as opposed to a judicial role. Is that the, the way that the court and justice seem to be pulling the different threads and the two parties' positions kind of together, falling them together. And do you think those those meet in the middle, the kind of secondary fallback or the narrower Bush v. Gore argument and this argument? And if so, how does the Supreme Court seem inclined to deal with this question of a standard, if at all, if it actually has to reach that issue? Ned, I'll start with you. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there'll be some effort I think you set it up nicely because even though Justice Kagan was re- was resisting the concession that uh, Don Verrilli and others made, I, I think what we're going to see in the end is at least a version of that. So, you know, I think the starting premise is, and this is kind of significant, I think, you know, this case is going to convert the Bush versus Gore concurrence into some form of majority principle, namely that there is federal judicial review over egregious uh, interpretation of state law by state Supreme Courts in the election space. And that will lead to more litigation, Uh, maybe not tons. Again, if it is a very difficult standard or deferential, as Don really said, maybe not a a ton of destabilization, but, but that's a significant development. But how that cashes out in operation, I think, is really important and and goes to your question about whether or not the the really fallback is the same as the petitioner's fallback and and justice alito i think asked a series of questions that really pointed to that in other words there was a colloquy i think by justice alito and and don verrilli on whether or not the state supreme court's decision in this case the north carolina supreme court was sufficiently judicial and appropriate under Verley's own standard. And of course, he said the answer was yes, 
But Justice Alito was extremely skeptical of that. And so I think Alito is going to lead a push of the justices on the conservative side that even if the Bush versus Gore concurrence becomes the operative principle in this area, that it's a more um, robust and vigorous one. It's not nearly as deferential as either Neil Kotyal or Don Verrilli or the Solicitor General would have would have wanted. And I and I frankly think the Alito position is probably closer to the petitioner's fallback, namely, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if 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 Justice Barrett and Justice Alito, you know, tried to articulate just because of their own understanding of what it means to be a good judge is so much more rule-based and more, you know, small C conservative in terms of judicial craft and methodology. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if if they imported that kind of perspective and mindset into what they think is permissible for a state court to do. So for a state court to take a clause like a free and fair elections clause and utilize that to police, you know, gerrymandering in a very aggressive way, I, I certainly could imagine some of the more conservative justices say that's just not sufficiently judicial for us. And, 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 we don't really care whether you you take that out of Bush versus Gore or you take that out of some other uh, doctrinal analysis, but we just can't let courts courts do that. I mean, Justice Alito had a series of hypotheticals where he's going down the line. He says, what if there isn't actually a free and fair elections clause, but the state Supreme Court simply says, you know, the fundamental principle of our state constitution is fairness, and therefore we're going to kind of by inference construct a fairness constraint on state legislatures that is judicially enforceable, no textual basis for it, and yet we're going to call that judicial interpretation. It sounded like he wanted to rule that as off limits, and and does it, somebody who is textualist by orientation like a Justice Barrett find that a, attractive? So um, it may be that some version of the Bush versus Gore concurrence becomes the operative standard, but it may be, again, something more aggressive than at least what the Verrilli uh, articulation of it was. And and let me jump in, I, because I think Justice Alito's position, I think, reflected some frustration that the petitioners didn't adopt something like he was suggesting, because he hinted at this. Remember, this case came up as an emergency order back, you know, earlier this year, February, March, and he j- wrote an opinion dissenting because the court didn't issue a stay. Um, and in his opinion, joined by Justices Gorsuch and Thomas, he pointed out things like there must be some limit to what state legislatures can do and pointing out that this wasn't just a free and fair elections clause. The North Carolina Supreme Court was construing four different provisions of the Constitution that kind of cast this shadow, if you will, to create an anti-gerrymandering provision. He was very skeptical. At oral argument today, he started reading from the opinion sort of picking this out as an as an outlier. And so I think I think Ned's right to say there's a position that Kachel and Varelli and Prelogger were suggesting to adopt a version of the Rehnquist concurring opinion in Bush versus Gore where North Carolina loses um even though that's the standard North Carolina loses. And then there's a, a more robust version that adopts something like that standard in Bush versus Gore. But that applies it in this case to say, well, when we're talking about you're not doing what you're doing typically, this this isn't the case. Justice Alito asked, 
is this is there a series of cases that led up to this decision? Like, could we have seen this one coming down the tracks, or is this a significant aberration from the way the courts have? And that that's some consistent language that we've seen in other federal courts cases addressing this. And, and uh, you know, Don Varelli comes back multiple times to say the petitioners have conceded that this is ordinary lawmaking because they want to make that more robust position. They want to rest on the substantive thing, not on the outlier rogue state Supreme Court. So Justice Leo might be fighting you know, the record and fighting the stipulations in this case, if that's the direction he chooses to go. Um, and it's not clear he'll get five votes for it, but uh, it does reflect some of that tension that Ned's highlighted about his position, which again, I think is still narrower than still than what the petitioners wanted, his position and the position of in the Rehnquist concurrence, at least, is floated by many of the respondents' attorneys. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend 
delete me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress as I do every time that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Well, that's actually a great segue and an interesting point that I thought came at the close to the end of the oral arguments when uh, Justice was, I think it was just Justice Kagan was engaging with Solicitor General Prelogar and really asked, is there a situation, is there a reason we need to reach and resolve this difficult question that you, the respondents, even are disagreeing with a little bit in terms of the applicable standard. And the Solicitor General said no, primarily because the petitioners have already conceded that, in their view, the Supreme Court of North Carolina interpreted the state constitution and state statute correct. Um, they're focusing on the invalidity, constitutional invalidity of that action. But if you say they're wrong on that front, they don't really contest the, the actual accuracy of interpretation of, of state law. And therefore, you don't need to reach this question because the issue actually isn't squarely before you. Do you all see it as likely that the Supreme Court would tread down that line and use that as a route to get away from having to address these difficult issues? Or does it seem like enough justices are intent on crafting some sort of standard in this Bush v. Gore space slash this this kind of related concession space by the respondents that we're going to get a debate about it? And then where do you look to to establish that standard, particularly because it's an issue that that was it was briefed in various regards, but not squarely briefed, not at length. Um, so, so what do they look? What do these seem likely to look to in crafting that? Ned, how about you? You know, we've talked about the the, the petitioner's concession, which I think is fair to call it that. That you know, on their theory, you take the state supreme court decision as a valid interpretation of state law, and 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 really, really hammered that, as we've been saying. On the other hand, in the rebuttal time, the, I think the very first thing 
you know, petitioner's counsel said on rebuttal was, oh, no, 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 don't interpret our concession that way. He said that concession was for the limited purposes of uh, analyzing our own theories, <laughs> our primary maximalist theory and our own fallback theory. But if you're not going to adopt either of our theory, then we do think the North Carolina Supreme Court's decision flunks Bush versus Gore. So, you know, whether that was enough of a retraction of their own concession, but I think that was significant for this reason. I mean, you know, when the when the nine justices sit at conference, you know, what they do is they announce their vote and and then they explain their reasonings for their their vote. And so so that they will need to decide, are they affirming uh, the North Carolina Supreme Court or are they reversing? And, and you know, obviously this case is going to have huge implications beyond this one state and this one issue of gerrymandering. But but I think some of the justices will have to, to decide, do they do they want to be on record as affirming or reversal? You, what the respondents all want is an affirmance. And, and, and when the Solicitor General says, oh, no, 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 you don't need to touch the Bush versus Gore standard. Yes, they, I think they would like that. But that seems to me an unlikely outcome. I think if there is a, something that affirms the North Carolina Supreme Court, I think it, it's going to be in the context of an opinion that is a shot across the bow to all the other state Supreme Courts saying, we're, we're watching all of you and don't go rogue. And we're worried about some of you going rogue. And so an affirmance would be to say, you, you haven't gone rogue in this case. But I think, I, I just don't think they want to duck the issue of not announcing something like at least the Bush versus Gore standard as as the shot across the bow. And so then the question becomes, if they are really going to adopt this standard and operationalize it, are they willing to affirm and say, we've announced the standard, but we're actually going to pass on the application of the standard in this case and, and, and give the North Carolina Supreme Court a passing grade? It's clear Justice Alito doesn't want to give it a passing grade, and I just don't know where, that I can tell exactly where the votes end up on that. So another big factor that enters into this decision and that the kind of two sides of the issue have very, very different approaches to is this question of historical practice. Um, and we really see the petitioner, saw the petitioner in oral argument as, as in briefing, really lean really hard on both an originalist perspective and particularly on Bruin, the Second Amendment case um, that this court decided last term that kind of embraced a fairly aggressive originalist methodology of sorts, uh, and particularly focusing on kind of the pre-1820 period as kind of the decisive period for an originalist understanding of parts of the Constitution. Very convenient for the petitioners here, but because, of course, there's a lot of fairly, arguably at least, inconsistent state practice after 1820 up until the present day. Some dispute over, you know, the details of that state practice, but I think most agree there's, there's a lot of problematic state practice, certainly for the petitioners, both during that founding period, but particularly afterwards. How do we think this originalist angle is going to fit into this case, and particularly this effort that some justices seem inclined to pursue of crafting out a more middle ground? Of course, you know Justice Gorsuch, Justice Thomas seem more, maybe more friendly to petitioners, and there are some of the strongest originalist viewpoints. But but Justice Barrett has a very strong originalist viewpoint and had some methodological kind of questions coming out of Bruin, at least hinted at. How does the the kind of new emerging originalist framework and methodological questions, how might that enter into this case? Or are we likely to see this them kind of get pushed beneath the surface in pursuit of a kind of cleaner resolution? Ned, let me start with you on that. 
Yeah, it's a really fascinating question. Um, my my instinct is it's not going to end up quite the major statement like in in Bruin for this reasons. You know, I, I don't see Justice Kavanaugh and the Chief fully on board with the originalist project in this context. I thought you know it was quite telling that the Chief Justice said you know the nature of judicial practice was so different at the time of the founding than it is today. It seems hard to constitutionalize today a new standard based on the nature of <laughs> the way courts worked, you know, over 200 years ago. And, and so while, you know, the Second Amendment may have lent itself to originalism, you know, for other reasons and that both Kavanaugh and Roberts were willing to go along with, I could be completely wrong, but my instinct is I think they are more going to be concerned about the institutional relationship of federal courts to state courts has evolved over time. I mean, I, the the discussion of the independent and adequate state doctrine, which is not a proposition of election law, but is a proposition of, of federal court practice in terms of the U.S. Supreme Court having appellate jurisdiction over federal issues coming out of the state system. To me, that's a clue that at least you know, for more moderate conservatives like Roberts and Kavanaugh, I think they'd like to find the doctrinal solution to this problem in that more familiar space. And so while I think maybe Justice Barrett and Justice Gorsuch will be eager to apply the new originalist methodology to this problem, and you'll see an opinion, you know, coming from them, I I predict more that that's a concurrence rather than the majority opinion. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll just add it's uh, this is a messy case for whether you describe it as whatever you you put as originalism. Um, You've got a lot of precedents that you have to grapple with, some of them much older. And you saw some of that coming out of oral argument, the gubernatorial veto, for instance, the argument being that, that the veto is really a exercise of legislative power held by the executive or that there are some uh, ways in which we can conceive of the executive as being part of the legislature for purposes of, of this provision of the constitution. So, so you see some of that. Uh, it's not clear how much weight that's going to carry. Uh, and then you've got to deal with, well, there were these laws on the books at the founding. There were constitutional provisions that may or may not have regulated federal elections. And there's fights about that. There are questions about when did state courts first start to try to enforce those provisions of state constitutions? Because that's a relatively recent phenomenon in terms of state courts exercising equitable jurisdiction. So there's a host of really messy and complicated issues to sift through. And I think it's a reason why Justice Barrett early on was suggesting, you know, some of the the distinctions even the petitioners are drawing, substantive versus procedural or whatever they are, are not really baked into the text of the Constitution, but you have to infer from some sort of structural separation of powers, early practices issues, and so on. And that's just a much trickier project, especially when you've got all this gloss of of uh, existing precedents lurking around out there in the background. So I, I sense it's, it's less going to be like a Bruin decision, as Ned said, and more decision that draws upon, again, adequate and independent ground is a sort of well-established doctrine of federal courts, a gloss placed upon how the federal courts review these decisions from the state courts 
imperfect in its own right, but a ready-made principle that you can pull up and give you a standard for reviewing and checking what state courts are doing. So I think that's a reason why it's attractive and the reason why it was attractive for Chief Justice Rehnquist in Bush versus Gore. Um, but you know, it is a, it's a wait and see about the methodological approach. So the other big factor that we saw hit particularly hard by the respondents for very understandable reasons is the kind of practical consequences of a decision, what Neil Katyal kind of memorably characterized as the blast radius uh, of the opinion, right? The, the, the scope of existing state laws and practices and recent and past elections whose legitimacy uh, and credibility and legality will be undermined if you were to f- pursue the petitioner's maximalist view, certainly. Um, and then even with more narrower views, you have in theory, I guess, a blast radius, and then perhaps maybe what also should be characterized as a blast zone, uh, you know, an area where it's not clear whether something is valid or not, but litigation becomes much more likely, doubts become much more likely, it raises a lot of bigger questions. What is your all sense about where we seem to be headed in terms of that blast radius and that blast zone tomorrow, use my own metaphor, uh, although feel free to abandon it because I'm not sure how good it is. Do we have a sense of what the court's tolerance for risk is in adopting a particular perspective? Do they seem more resistant to that? And does that give us a, and I guess do they take approaches to one or the other? Are they more opening, willing to perhaps open the floodgates to litigation without, but far less willing to maybe invalidate anything on its face or, or make anything clearly seem validated, barring a more specific, you know, fact con- or context specific analysis for whatever that other issue is? Derek, I'll start with you. I mean, it's really hard. I mean, I think there's no question that the court dislikes having these cases, doesn't want to have to wait in all the time. We saw a lot of them come up and the court, you know, has to uh, issue no decision or issue a stay and receive criticism for it, or some of the justices will dissent from the stay. And we saw this time and time again, the 2020 election. And and you can sense in some places trying to articulate a rule (laughs) And asking quite explicitly of the parties, what rule am I supposed to be writing here? I mean, not uncommon in arguments, but I think notable here is where they're thinking about the the litigation risk. I'm thinking about the risk that if these cases are coming out of state courts, you know, the the next stop is the United States Supreme Court. Most of these are not going to be filed in the federal district courts. So if there's going to be error correction, it's happening at the United States Supreme Court. So I, I, I think that got, came across explicitly and implicitly throughout the argument, and I think they're aware of it. Um, and again, a reason why when Justice Alito is pointing out this this concern about a standard that uh, is almost impossible to flunk for the state Supreme Court, uh, does it invite sort of this litigation? Does it invite hope? As some people have said, does it invite a pretext? You know, a lot of shoddy legal arguments were floated around in contests around the 2020 election, you know, sort of bandied about a snake oil to state legislatures. Um, does this give you a hook to be able to show up and say, aha, this is the basis for doing so? I'm not sure. So I, I think there's some skepticism from the court uh, about whatever standard it has, that it wants something that's going to be administrable and avoid the litigation. And in some ways, that might be more persuasive to them than saying, oh, dozens of election laws might be in peril. Uh, That might be okay for some members of the court. They'll say there's other checks in the process, Congress can step in, all that. Uh, There can be two tracks of election administration. You know, that's not our concern. Uh, I think many of them are much more concerned about the practical judicial administration costs, um, and we'll we'll see what they come up with as a result. Yeah, I guess I would add, I I think some of the justices see risks in both directions. I mean, I, I, I definitely think... 
you know, they would recognize a, a, an adverse cost of just, you know, having all these <laughs> new cert petitions to deal with uh, involving this new doctrine. On the other hand, uh, I think we know that several of the justices going back to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's decision extending the deadline for submitting absentee ballots in, in 2020 was from their perspective, whether you agree or disagree, but from their perspective, the poster child of what they don't want to see state Supreme Court's doing. And, and again, Justice Alito, I think, articulated that a little bit without reference to that particular case, I don't think, at oral argument. But the idea, you know, that elected state Supreme Courts can be very partisan in their dealing with election cases. And I think I, I think the, the, the majority of the Supreme Court does not want to rule this, in this case in a way that divests themselves of a final authority of, of having a checking function. So I think they're willing to entertain a certain amount of increased litigation risk in order to give themselves what they see as an appropriate role. And I think they trust themselves. Uh, other people may view them as partisan, but they don't view themselves that way. And so I think they're, they're, they're going to hold on to that power uh, you know, for themselves. Um, and then the other, the other reason why I think some of the justices might be attracted to the petitioner's fallback provision is, I think, again, it, it might invite a certain amount of contestation, but if, if, if the consequence of the, of the petitioner's fallback is, is, is basically to force state constitutional law to have greater specificity so as to constrain sub, state Supreme Courts from having more interpretive running room, it's again, right or wrong. I think some of the U.S. Supreme Court justices say well, that's just fine by us. <laughs> We're happy to have a world in which state state constitutions can police federal elections, but we just want to create a regime that requires those state constitutions to do that with sufficient um, specificity that we can double check and make sure that the courts are being genuinely judicial from our perspective. And so we're going to announce a standard that brings about that world. And it may be a little bit destabilizing in the interim, but it will lead to a better world because there'll be more clarity about what constitutions can and can't do. They've got to be specific. And so state Supreme Courts won't have the ability to be so creative, but they may not think that's a bad thing. So I want to leave a, a little bit of time. We've gotten one or two uh, listener questions, although I think we've already kind of covered one. But one last point to kind of end with you all from me before I turn to those is obviously a background consideration, a reason why this case has gotten so much attention uh, and so much uh, has been such a source of concern is its relevance, not just to congressional elections, but what some see as potential relevance to presidential elections down the road uh, because of the similar language regarding state legislatures that's in the elections clause relating to federal congressional elections. That's at issue here. That's the basis for the petitioner's argument here. There's similar language in the electors clause um, regarding the uh, selection of electors to ultimately select the president. And arguments rooted in a similar logic have been, uh, you know, were invoked in 2020. Only one or two amicus even really hinted at them that I saw. You know, even the petitioners here kind of said this issue isn't really relevant. But I feel like we, we need to address it before we step away. Does it seem like we're going to get anything out of this opinion that's likely to bear on potential arguments under a version of the independent state legislature doctrine that bear on that electors clause context that's relevant to presidential elections, if, particularly if we don't get the petitioner's broadest vision um, of how to, this language should be read? Granted, do these more moderate positions have relevance there that that's worth bearing in mind? 
Uh, Derek, I'll start with you. Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I, these cases were litigated in 2020. Um, the absentee ballot case in Pennsylvania, for instance, among others, uh, as electors clause cases, as legislature thereof component of the electors clause as opposed to the elections clause. So I, I anticipate that whatever comes out of this, especially if they're borrowing from Bush versus Gore, which is an electors clause case, it will have some relevance there. The, the big difference between the two clauses, of course, being that Congress does not have express authorization to override the state laws in the electors clause context. So the stakes in some ways are higher there because there are fewer checks in the process um, on the state legislature. Um, But my sense is the court tends to read these clauses together, not always, um, but will tend to read these clauses together. Uh, The standard it draws to the extent it has a very narrow vision, some sort of uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist vision of the Bush versus Gore case will apply. And again, there there is the risk, right, of continuing that litigation incentive by describing that, oh, this is another way in which the state courts can be reviewed by the United States Supreme Court, raising all the very same sorts of uh, risk and trade-off concerns we talked about earlier. Yeah, I, I agree with Derek. I think, um, you know, as he said, Bush versus Gore was, a you know, came up in the presidential election context. And so, but I think it's important to distinguish between two aspects of potential uh, relevance here uh, for presidential elections. One is like Bush versus Gore itself or the Pennsylvania litigation in, in 2020. That's when you know the, the, the two sides are fighting over the, the rules that were set up ahead of time and are those rules being enforced through proper judicial interpretation or not. That's the kind of thing uh, that the decision in this case would have bearing on. But the key point there is that that's when the relevant state statute was adopted prior to the casting of the ballots in the popular vote on which the electors are appointed. And as opposed to the fear that some people have articulated that I don't think is properly understood to be at risk, is the idea that the legislature in a presidential election could come in after the fact and repudiate the popular vote and say, we're just going to appoint electors directly. I can't see any result in Moore versus Harper that would permit that theory. Uh, And I think that theory is non-tenable because, you know, once the date for the uh, election has been set by Congress, um, state law can only operate up to the point of the appointment on that date. And so there's no legislative authority to undo the appointment that's already occurred pursuant to state law. I think the petitioners in their own reply brief conceded that point. One of their amikis also conceded it. I didn't hear anything about that in oral argument today. So I think any implication to the in the context of presidential elections will be confined to the same scope that Bush versus Gore itself had and not extend to this you know, much more dramatic consequence, but which I don't think is really at risk at all. Let me go to our our remaining listener question then, uh, which is just the question uh, I think all of, all professors are waiting to hear. Uh, so hopefully, hopefully uh, you are prepared for it. How would you decide this case uh, if you were in the position of the justices? Well, I wrote an amicus brief saying it should be decided on statutory grounds, and uh, that that two USC two C embraces the notion that uh, congressional districts are supposed to be drawn by law. 
by law include state courts interpreting state constitutions. Uh, that was raised very late in the argument. Justice Alito seemed uh, somewhat disgusted with the argument uh, <laughs> and in questions with the Solicitor General. Um, so if that were me, that would, would be how I decide this case. I mean, I think there are so many procedural hurdles to get over, especially as some people have pointed out, you know, the North Carolina Supreme Court has a different makeup right now. The North Carolina legislature is going to get to draw a new map for 2024 on its own. So, you know, for me, uh, taking a a narrow statutory ground and saving the more complicated questions for another day, but that's the luxury of a law professor to to save them and rather as opposed to the litigants who have the boots on the ground issues to be wanting the, the clear guidance for the future. And I, I'll say I just thought Derek's position was brilliant, and I think the court would be well advised to to take it. I, I didn't unfortunately see much appetite for it. So you know, putting that aside, I guess I I was enamored by the way that Don Verrilli, uh articulated you know that narrow version of the fallback. I I thought that was a pretty uh, sensible approach. So um, you know, the, I, that would be something that I would gravitate to, but I don't know that it's going to get five votes. Well, we will have to wait and find out. We maybe we'll have a chance to revisit the conversation then. Until then, uh, however, we are out of time. Derek Muller, Ned Foley, thank you for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thanks so much for having us. It's a pleasure. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And check out Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, a casual, lighthearted chat about national security news that I co-host each week with my colleagues Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. Also, be sure to visit lawfareblog.com for our extensive written coverage of national security law and policy issues, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts, among other perks. This podcast was edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and our audio engineer was Kara Schillen of Good Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.